Thanks for listening to Bowties and Business. I'm your host, Tim Kubiak. As always, you can find us on your favorite podcast service, Apple, Spotify, host of other services, as well as special notes for this episode on the timkubiak.com website. You can find us on our socials at Bowties and Business on Facebook and Instagram, and Bowties and B-I-Z on Twitter, and you can find me at Tim Kubiak on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, as well as the website, obviously. Today, we're going to talk about becoming digital era leaders with Charles Araujo. Charles is a technology analyst and an internationally recognized authority on the digital enterprise and leadership in the digital era. He advises technology companies and enterprise leaders on how to navigate the transition from the industrial age to the digital era. Having spent over 30 years in the technology industry, he's been researching digital transformation long before it became the uber buzzword of today. And now he's focused on helping digital era leaders prepare themselves and their organizations as the macro trends of the primacy of the customer and the primacy of the algorithm collide, ushering us into what he calls the new human age. He's a principal analyst with Intellex, founder of the Institute for Digital Transformation, the author of three books, and most recently the co-founder, along with his wife, of the MAPS Institute. Charles is a sought-after keynote speaker and has been quoted or published in CIO, Time, Information Week, CIO Insight, Network World, Computer World, USA Today, and Forbes. Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to be here. So if we can just give people a little more background beyond the intro here, you know, I heard once in an intro that you started in technology with a screwdriver and a Commodore 64. You have an impressive background, but was that really your first step into the profession? It, it was actually, I joke that if I, you know, if a 10 year old could have a career, that's where it started. Um, it, you know, so what it really boiled down to, I was a geek, I was a nerd, I was whatever, you know, I don't One of them is like a cool term now and one of them is not cool, but I can't tell which is which, so I just use them both. But I, you know, I, that's just sort of who I was. And my, my dad got me this computer, got us. I adopted it as mine, but it was for the family. And I just sort of dove in. I mean, I, I used to, we played Monopoly, as you would imagine, like lots of kids' games. And I actually wrote a piece of software so that we could go cashless for our Monopoly game. We recorded all the transactions in some, I don't remember what language it was, but on the Commodore. And yeah, so that was absolutely where I started all, all the way back at the beginning. So what was logical progression from there? You start as a geek or a nerd, and I don't know which one's cool either. And you've done a lot of things in your career. How do you go from A to B to C to where you are today? Well, uh, I'll give you the, the slightly longer version, which I almost never do. But I, it, I really did. I mean, it's important, I guess, at least if for anyone who's sort of in the technology, that I really do kind of have, have the credentials, so to speak, in terms of, of this is where I came from. I, I started all the way in high school. I... I wanted a car, like at 16, I wanted a car, but I, I didn't want to flip burgers. And so I did what any self-respecting geek would do. And I wrote an order management system in COBOL for a local manufacturing firm. And that's how I made the money to buy my car. I graduated high school and I actually signed a contract with my high school to rebuild their computer lab. So uh, over that summer between high school and college, I had an entire garage full of uh, I don't know, 100 or 50, I don't remember how many it was, computers that I built from scratch. I ordered all the parts. I actually hired a small team. We assembled all them, imaged drives, the whole bit. You know, back This is back in the late 80s. 
And, uh, you know, so I sort of went down that road. And so I was always into that. And, and that sort of one thing led to another. And I worked both with, uh, like, I guess we'd call them bars now, right? Uh, and I ended up uh, finally at the age of 25, after going through a few of these uh, jump starts, I, I ended up working for a healthcare company. Um, in the end, I, I joined them when it was smaller through a series of acquisitions. By the time I left, it was about a billion dollar healthcare firm. And at the ripe old age of 25, I had a staff of, a, of both permanent contractors of about 100 people. I had a $10 million budget. I, I look back now, I see the pictures of myself and I'm like scratching my head. What were these people thinking? But I, I ended up, I, I, uh, I called it my career in a box because over a period of two and a half years, we quintupled our size, mostly through acquisition. But what was interesting is from an, an IT perspective, we didn't acquire anything. We, we had to grow all of that organically in, in you know, healthcare. So we were acquiring hospitals and clinics, but not any of their technology. And so it, it, it really served the foundation to this day of, of everything I do, because I was in this incredible pressure cooker. I just didn't sleep for two and a half years. And so I ended up having to become really good at things like process management and organizational design and fundamental leadership skills because I just, I had to, I, I mean, I, it was that or I died. And so that was really the foundation and then sort of put that on this whole track. And that eventually led to um, me sort of taking all those skills I had the ripe old age and now of like 27 when I got done with this. Uh, and I started consulting and leading large scale transformation programs because in effect, that's what I had done over this period of two and a half years. And so that's what sort of put me on a path, which eventually led to a book and speaking and this kind of crazy place I ended up. <laughs> and we talked about in the intro, your digital future.net. So a big part of what you do now is digital transformation. And today, you know, if you can, I want to kind of transition to sort of a primer for non-technical business people. Because I, I'll talk about it from my experience as a sales leader and running parts of an organization that weren't technical other than maybe a couple of pre-sales guys that were always way smarter than me, right? You hear digital transformation and you either think it's nirvana or you should go and hide because it's going to screw up your business. So first of all, you know, um, what does that term actually mean and are there different uses of it? So short answer, absolutely different uses of it. But the long answer I actually need to give, finish sort of, I guess, my background story because it, it does lead here. So uh, fast forward now, I'm, I'm leading um, all these transformational programs or all these efforts. And, and I was sort of like this crazy preacher on the sidewalk as I saw that the world of IT was changing and that IT leaders are struggling. So I'm like, you must transform. And, and so these executives that I was working with at the time said, okay, we get it. Into what, right? Why? Why are we doing this transformation? What does that even mean? And so I ended up coining the term the quantum age of IT, I put these ideas because I realized I didn't, I didn't have a good answer for that. And so I spent some time sort of deconstructing it and I put these ideas up and this publisher reaches out to me and says, hey, these are very interesting ideas. Have you ever thought of writing a book? I thought, how hard could that be? Ha, 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 ha. Uh, so 18 <laughs> months later, I had done all this research, interviewed all these executives and I'd written this book and it was this amazing experience. Somebody asked me, you know, was it worth it? I said, I don't care if anybody reads it. Just the process of going through this was worth so much to me. But as it would happen, the week it was published, I got my very first call to come speak at an event in Amsterdam. And suddenly before I knew it, I'm literally flying all over the world um, talking about the future of IT and what it meant to be a, a leader in that future. I ended up about six years ago on a speaking tour through New Zealand. 
And it was about four events over 10 days. And one of the events I was speaking at was something called the Digital Disruption Conference. It was hosted by the Auckland University of Technology and the US Embassy. And it was sort of their answer to TED Talks. And unique for me at the time, it was a non-IT audience, right? This was, this was small business leaders and academics and CEOs of their biggest companies. It was sort of the, the business elite of Auckland. And so it caused me to step back and ask how these forces that I've been researching and writing about and talking about as they affected IT and I asked myself, well, how are they affecting everybody else and everything else? And so that's what led me to focus on what we now call digital transformation. But you, you absolutely bring up the very real unfortunate point is that it has been a term that has been co-opted for marketing purposes. And it now almost can mean next to nothing in terms of as, as people, because they've used it in so many different ways. But at the time, it was just this recognition. It wasn't about technology. I didn't even, I mean, I eventually called it digital transformation but it was really just me realizing that this was a, a fundamental shift that was happening as we exited the industrial age and that this was going to be a time in which the fundamental ways that organizations were structured, managed, and led were in fact changing. That it was underpinned by technology, but that it was about this business transformation that was occurring. So the, the first part of the definition of what is digital transformation, from my perspective, it's not technology transformation. It's about business transformation. And in fact, it represents a fundamental transformation of business models, operating models, and work and management models. And it's all centered around this fundamental shift that happened about 15 years ago is where it sort of started. And that is the shift in power, as I call it, from the organization to the customer. And what I mean by that is in the industrial age, we were making a mass product for a mass market. And so the way you created business value was by optimizing the supply chain or what I call optimizing the core. How the more efficiently you could create, you know, develop, create, produce, distribute, and sell and market that product, the more money you made because all that efficiency dropped to the bottom line. What we saw about 10 or 15 years ago, this rise was that you saw, you've heard the term, right? Digital disruption, all these companies coming in, disrupting these longstanding companies and industries. And what we found is that they did not out optimize their competitors. They transformed the customer experience. They transformed the way they interacted with their customers. And that's what gave them a leg up. It wasn't that they out optimized them. And so this was this fundamental shift. So when I talk about digital transformation, it is fundamentally about this, this shift in power, this focus on the customer experience as the primary driver of business value and the, the necessary transformation of business models, operating models and work models that then have to support this new customer experience. And that's why, sorry, I live in New York City, there goes the, the sirens. Um, and that's why I think so many people get this wrong because they think it's all about the technology and it's not. It's about business transformation around this focus on the customer experience. That's my take on it anyway. So, and I'm gonna go off script here, right? So selfishly, I, I look at this as a guy who's been a sales leader and said, okay, is this really about supply chain? Is it about feedback of information to customers, the consumerization of IT? Is it the business driving the IT and the application demands? Is it all those things? It is all of them. That is exactly it. And it's about posturing, which is why. So I wrote an article for CIO um, probably a couple of years ago now about an experience I had right before we moved here to New York, in fact, um, with uh, LA Fitness. And I guess they're named in the article, so I can name them here. But and, and what it what I talked about was that they missed the essence of this. Right. So they had a really cool front end in terms of the, the website and being able to 
join up and get a membership. I never had to talk to one of the counselors or whatever they call them because I hated that process, right? And it was a really good experience until it was time for me to leave. And I, and I wasn't leaving because I was unhappy. I was leaving because I was moving across country and there were no gyms here. But they made it so onerous to leave. They made it so painful that not only did I end up leaving this positive experience and going completely negative in my own mind, I wrote an article about it. I tell everyone who will ever listen about it, right? It, it created this incredibly negative experience. And what they failed to recognize is I'm sure somebody there thought that they went through this massively wonderful digital transformation, but really all they did was they changed, they applied technology to the front end of this process. But when we talk about the customer experience, it is transcendent. It goes throughout the entirety of the customer journey through all of these different touch points, including when someone is leaving. And if you want proof of this, go look at any of the digital natives, right? Any of the Netflixes of the world and just look at how easy they make it to do everything, including leave, right? And so that's the essence of this when we talk about digital transfer. And, and by the way, the ramifications for that from a sales perspective, if you want to look at it, are, are amazing. They are, they are truly entrenched because in order to do that, it comes down to execution. So a lot of the things that IT has always been about, which is you know, the, this ability to drive optimization, this ability to automate things, are still vitally important. They're just vitally important for a different reason, right? Because my ability to execute is what enables that experience and enables me to create differentiated value. If I can't execute, I lose every time. Right? So it's all of those pieces. You have to get all of them to work. But if you don't get the perspective right to start with, then it's, it's going to fail because you don't have it anchored into the value you're trying to create. Can you transform by business function, by department, or does it have to be an all-in-one? I do not believe it has to be all-in-one. It does have to be holistic, at least insofar as understanding the outcome that you seek. But if, if you are a departmental leader and you, this is your sphere of control, can you transform there? Absolutely, right? It, it's the simplest way is having people starting to ask the question when I'm doing things like applying a new technology or adjusting policies and processes and procedures, asking from the perspective of how is this going to affect a user? How is this connected to a customer consuming the service or a product that we are delivering? How, what is my role in that? And connecting it to sort of the strategic objectives of the organization. Now you may only be able to transform your piece of it. And that means it's going to limit your ability to have a, you know, an outsized impact. Um, so, you know, ultimately digital transformation in its truest sense has to happen at an organizational level but as I've often said, there's no such thing as organizational transformation. There's individual transformation multiplied across an organization. And so in order for that to happen at the, the smallest team level, we have to be working through this process of transformation. So you're a hardcore process guy. You understand the technology. You understand the impacts, right? If I'm in a company or a listener's in a company and somebody comes and says, oh, we're starting digital transformation or we're taking the next evolution, what's the best way to have a real conversation with someone like you who knows it inside and out and represents, and we'll take your, your fitness club experience and say, look, I'm in charge of customer complaints, DOAs, and returns, right? How do I start that conversation on where to where maybe I want to improve, where my pain is, 
where can the technology help versus it just being an overall change in well, how we I, do things? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is, is so, so when people ask me where to start with all of this, and I think that's kind of where you're going, is that I, I really, I tend to draw on two mindsets. So the, the, what I, I say people, to tell people all the time, is that you don't really want to start with the technology. Now, I know if you're a sales guy and you're selling technology, that, that's not necessarily a fun thing to hear. And, and the good news is that all of this actually in truth happens in parallel, right? Because we still need the technology to function. We still need all of this to, to work in order to execute, right? We're not stopping. Right? This is about transforming a bomber jet into a fighter jet in midair. So it, all of this is continuing all at once. That said, the two sort of mindsets that I focus on are the design thinking mindset and the systems thinking mindset. So design thinking is really about putting yourself in the shoes of your customer, of the ultimate customer who's delivering the, the purchase to the organization, which is what, then what filters all the way down, and focusing everything around, well, how is this impacting them? How are they experiencing this? But as we were talking about before, when we, we, the ability to tie execution into this is where those often hit a brick wall is that it's really easy to put a nice, you know, nice high gloss finish on the front end and then have everything be a disaster on the back end. And that inability to execute is what often stops these efforts from truly being successful. And part of that is the complexity and the highly integrated nature of the systems that support all of these front end processes. And so systems thinking is a way of, of understanding all that interconnectedness. And so when you put these two together, what you suddenly realize is this becomes a, a, a way of seeing the entire organization in its totality. And the good news about this, going back to your previous question, is that we can start doing this and isolating this down into small functional teams. So if I've got a specific set of problems, I can apply these two constructs, these mental constructs, to say, how is this affecting the customer? What is their perspective? At what point are they engaging with us? What are the different touch points? Do customer journey mapping and touch point mapping, all of those kinds of things, and say, what are the different systems that impact them on the back end? And how can I make incremental improvements to those that leads to a positive change in the experiential outcome? And so, excuse me, and so it's really just about the sort of changing mindset, and, and it, it doesn't have to be big bang. In fact, it almost never works in a big bang. It's about identifying this repeatedly, continually going through and, and, and improving across all of those dimensions. And, and that, that's what makes it so hard. And frankly, why people resort to saying, oh, I'll just go buy you know, $2 million worth of technology instead and call it digital transformation. Because that's, it's a whole lot easier than doing this very, very hard work. So you work with two sets of customers, and I don't want to misrepresent it. You, you work with line of business business leaders, and you work with companies that you help them articulate their message, in many cases, technology companies, into those business leaders, right? How does that give you a perspective that, frankly, a lot of people probably don't have because you're on one side of the aisle or the other in most cases? So, you know, what's interesting is, is having spent the majority of my career on the buy side, right? Either running operations directly myself or advising my, you know, clients who, and really I was sort of the right hand guy executing these transformational programs. I have this very, you know, deep understanding of what happens within the enterprise and why this stuff is so hard and why doing it right is so important. And one of the big kind of ahas is that as much as I will be the first to say that this is not about 
the technology. It's about cultural shift and about transformation of business models and operating models. The one thing you realize pretty quickly as you start getting your head around this is that there are massive gaps that have to be closed and can only be closed using technology, right? The reason we call this digital transformation is, is it's not that it's a lie and it's not about that it's technology first, but that all of this that we're talking about is only enabled by this robust technology that sits underneath the covers that allows us to do all of these amazing things. And the biggest challenge I think that organizations have is in closing that gap, is understanding the business capabilities that they need to create, foster, and sustain to create competitive differentiation in the market and aligning the technical capabilities that they have to build and predominantly buy in the marketplace that enable those business capabilities, right? And actually bringing that frame of reference to how they approach it. So as a result, I do like to work with both sides of this. I, I wanna work with the organizations to help them understand the business capabilities. And so the work I do there is really high level advisory. Um, and you know, we're doing a lot of research in this area about uncovering where are these business capabilities, where are their kind of benchmarks and breakpoints, and where are the gaps with the technology that's available in the marketplace and how, do, how are organizations are putting this together. So for enterprises, I'm working with them to provide advisory around how do you execute these sort of transformational programs, as well as how do you leverage the research we're doing to understand where those gaps are. And for technology companies, they've got sort of the opposite problem in many cases. I mean, I am truly blown away by the technology that is coming out today. And every day it's getting better and more powerful. And the challenge in most cases is that it is an incredibly noisy, crowded space right now. As I describe it, enterprise executives are staring at the tsunami of technology crashing on their shores, and they're trying to pick out the pieces that they can assemble to create competitive advantage. And it, you know, in many cases, these technology companies have the technology to help them do that, and they can't get the message across. They can't communicate exactly how they provide this distinct value in this context. And so for the technology companies, the work I do is helping them with that messaging, right? What is the go-to-market strategy? What is the messaging? Who are the right personas? In the enterprise in particular, as you know all too well, it, it's, it's um, additionally complicated by the fact that there's a whole bunch of different buying motions. There's a whole bunch of, of intersecting confluence points and figuring out who you're addressing and that the messages not only have to be unique to that buying persona or that buying person, but they also have to coalesce. They all have to come together. I cannot tell you the number of times I sat around the buying table, right? Just us, us chickens internally trying to make a buying decision. And literally the executive, executive team was ready and then the technical came, team came in to sort of make their pitch and they ended up derailing the thing because they're talking about a set of messaging that was completely in, incongruent to what the business messaging had been, right? So what it really amounted to, you had the executive sales team coming in talking about one thing, and then you had the technical sales team coming in delivering a different message, and the two didn't line up. And, and what that creates inside the executive suite in the buying decision is uncertainty. And we hate uncertainty, we hate risk, right? And so you have to have these messages coalesce. And then the last little piece of that that I think is absolutely critical right now for a tech company is that you have to be selling a vision. Right. If you if you put yourself in the shoes of the enterprise buyer and you have this just tsunami of technology, the one thing you come to terms with pretty quickly is that you're probably going to be wrong. <laughs> you know, you're trying to sort out the right decisions on which technology to buy is incredibly difficult with as fast as this is moving. And so what do we do? Well, we place bets on people 
who we believe have a vision that aligns to our vision of where the future is going, because that's a bet on that idea of, of that we're in alignment there, right? It's not about the specific technology. And so something in like Salesforce, as an example, is a company that does this masterfully, right? They craft a vision for the future and invite their customers to join them. And they are unabashed to say, if you don't believe in this future, if you don't believe in this vision, then we're probably not a good fit for you, right? And I think organizations that are doing that and crafting this cohesive, cogent, you know, impactful vision of the future and then saying, and this is how the solutions we're doing that we provide into the market help support that vision. Those are the ones that are winning in the market today. And so, but, but that's hard to do because you have to get beyond speeds and feeds and get beyond features and benefits and, and be willing to step out and say, hey, this is where everything is going and this is how it all fits together, which is what I help with in some parts. So a piece of research you did, you, you have a chart in there that states 70% of digital transformation projects fail. What causes that? Well, a, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, um, I would say first and foremost, people go in and treat it like a project. They, they think it, it is. So the industrial age was really built around the sort of project mentality. You've probably heard some of the talk around project versus product mentality, right? And so in the industrial age, it was all about, I, I start in a current state and I, you know, my as is, and then I'm going to have a project that it ends and I have a future state. Well, that's great in a relatively static world. We live in anything but a static world now. And so what we talk about is transformation as a capability, not as a project. It's not something you're going to finish. So my, my favorite re reports are when people go, you know, 37% are done with digital transformation. And I'm like, if you think you're done, then you didn't even start because you missed the point entirely, right? So, so I think people that treat it as a project, treat it as a technology effort where they're going to go implement some piece of technology they, that, that is almost always a red flag that you're approaching this incorrectly. I think the other major challenge is that they uh, approach only organizations fail with digital transformation efforts um, because they are only addressing one element of it. They're addressing just the technology or maybe just the, just the process. Um, and, and what they often miss, again, because it's the hardest part of this puzzle, is the cultural side of this, is, is addressing the people side. How do I change the way I look at it? So if we go all the way back to my fundamental premise that this is about a shift in perspective and a shift in value creation from optimization to the customer experience. Well, that requires a fundamental change in how we look at everything of how we structure our organization, what our business policies and processes are. And that means that people have to change how they look at it to begin with. And that's where so much of this gets derailed. You get this brand new technology and we use it to do all the same stuff we used to do just a little bit faster, a little bit better. And that's not transformative. So, you know, my barometer, if you want to know if you are leading a successful transformational effort, things should start to look wildly different, almost unrecognizable within a couple of years. And if they don't, it's probably not an actual transformational effort. So along those lines, right, as a business leader, what kind of tangible outcomes should you be able to drive as part of a transformation project? So perhaps one of the hardest things around a true, authentic, transformational effort is that we aren't going to measure it in quite the same way. I mean, in the end, you should see increased revenue, increased profit, all the, you should start looking, I mean, compare the financial metrics of digital native companies to industrial age stalwarts, and, and you clearly see the financial performance differences. That's why they're the most highly valued companies in the world, yada, yada, yada. So eventually, that's what you see. 
But in the meantime, part of the challenge is that the things that you should be measuring are things, for instance, there's a new metric that's starting to get some traction called return on experience, right? This idea of what we're actually measuring is a transformation, is that transformation of the experience, how our customers see us. And so Qualtrics, as an example, which of course SAP acquired for a bunch of money and is now spinning back off into a public company, their entire model is about creating metrics around the customer and employee experience so that you can get quantifiable data. And they are the biggest, but they're by no means the only player in the space that is giving organizations tools to measure quantifiably elements of the experience that are difficult to see strictly in buying patterns. Because a lot of times what will happen is A, we have experiential elements that start far before the purchase that we have to be able to get insight to long before they actually decide or decide not to buy from us. And then depending on the type of product, a lot of times um, that initial spend is just the beginning of this process. And there's all these different touch points in, in which there's opportunities for additional spend, for growing spend, and for things like social sharing where they become your sales agent, so to speak, by spreading the word. And so you need ways of measuring all of those different things. To, to answer your question, what you want to see with successful transformation is really a mix of both of these. You want to see that the technology is improving your executional capability, your efficiency, your optimization, all the things that were sort of the hallmarks of the industrial age. However, that they are, are improving in the context of how they enable you to better serve your customer, right? So simply out, so call centers, the historical virtual call centers are a classic example. If the only benefit I'm seeing is I have fewer call center agents because I have put this crazy IVR system in front of it that has that basically makes people give up before they you know get to anybody. Then I'm I may be driving an efficiency gain. I may be realizing money savings, but I'm not doing it in the context of improving the experience. So that is not going to be a good measure. But if uh, you know one of the firms working with right now, for instance, is a company called IPSoft, and they have a digital agent that is incredibly powerful and has the ability to actually create a positive transformative experience while improving efficiency and reducing costs. So if you implement that type of technology, now suddenly, yes, I'm getting that efficiency, but the, the real efficiency gain is being transferred to the customer. The customer is able to solve their problems more efficiently. They're able to get to their answer more expeditiously. I'm creating a better experience. Oh, and by the way, I'm also saving money, right? So in those types of situations, it's a whole different ballgame, and that's what you are looking for. So, so the first is that you are looking for executional capability, efficiency, and optimization, but in the context of delivering a better experience to your customer. And then the second thing you really should be looking is um, and you kind of have to pick your favorite on this, whether it's net promoter score, whether it's using something like Qualtrics, but you're looking for sentiment analysis, that how your customer sees you. Do they believe that you are a brand that they want to interact with, that they have faith in? So all, all the things we've seen with all the civil unrest right now has sort of demonstrated it, 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 it used to be that our goal was to sort of stay off the radar. Right? We didn't want to have an opinion as an organization. We didn't want to take a stand on anything because all that did was alienate some portion of our client base, at least in theory. What we're seeing today is that customers mm -hmm. are looking at everything. They expect, they want organizations that are demonstrating empathy to their belief systems. And so we're making buying decisions. And this goes very much back to this idea of the experiential, experiential nature of value creation 
is that they're expecting you to take a stand. And it, that doesn't mean you have to go and make a stand on these social issues, but what it does mean is that that's what you need to be measuring. You need to understand who your customers are, what is important to them holistically, far beyond what they think about just your product or service, and then connecting into that. And that should be your chief measure that you know you're, you're finding success in your transformational efforts because you're able to improve those metrics of whatever is important to your customer. Hopefully that made sense. So putting, it did. And it actually brought up another question because so often when I'm working with people and even things that I'm reading in general talks about how millennials react. And they're certainly very open about the things you just described. They want to know where companies stand socially. They vote with their dollars, et cetera. But this isn't just a millennial issue, right? It's expanded basically multi-generational. So, you know, it's funny. I, absolutely. This, this very much, and I'm not a big fan of the whole generational thing. I think there are definitely some generalizations we can make about millennials or Gen Zs or, you know, any of the the categories here, but, but I agree. I mean, I think it started with the millennials in terms of sort of opening this door, but that's really just about, you know, we're, we're all subject to this. We're, we're used to what we're used to and, and we have to see something else until we start realizing, Hey, that's actually important to me too. So I, I don't think this is an age thing. I think across the board today, we are all starting to look at the world differently and, and our buying decisions differently. Uh, and so I, I don't think this is an age thing. I think it is more in your face with, with the younger generations. Um, they will be more vocal about it. But I think everyone is, is starting to make decisions in this way. It's funny. I had this conversation with my 21-year-old last night, right? And she wants me to be vocal and take a stand. And I'm like, I'm just not going to do business with them. It's really simple. And she's exactly. like, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So, you know, at the risk of going back, there is a difference in how we do it because, you know, I'm just like, well, I'm just not going to go there. It's really well, easy. And, and, you know, it's actually a really good point because, because it is that very thing, which is why I think a lot of organizations think this is a millennial only thing. And, and it's almost insidious because your older, quote unquote, buyers, not to call you old, but like me, right? Those, those of us that are not 21. I'm older. It's okay. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're making the decisions in the same way, but we're not vocal about it. And so yeah. it's easy for you to take your older customers for granted, think that they don't care about these things, and therefore you can stay on the sidelines. And, and here's the, the, what brought, I actually brought this up on um, our podcast. So the Institute, I, I have a, a podcast video show with the Institute for Digital Transformation called Digital Experience Revolution. And we actually covered this topic um, a, a few weeks ago, a little bit. And I talked about Tim Ferriss, you probably know him. He wrote uh, The 4-Hour mm -hmm. work week, right? He's extremely well-known. Yeah. yeah, he has the biggest uh, podcast in the, in the world. Um, he's got a huge loyal fan base, most of which are not millennials, right? And while all the civil unrest was going on, he posted a very, in my opinion, a very innocuous photo. It was a photo of a bottle of rosé um, from Provence, an area that I love. And he asked about the label. Said, hey, you French speakers out there, you know, do you know what this means? You know, but even if you don't, you know, this is an amazingly delicious bottle of rosé. And he got slammed on social media because it was like, you know, how tone deaf you are, you're not paying attention to all the stuff that's going on with the race, you know, with the, the civil unrest and all of this stuff. And, you know, how could you do? And I'm like, wow, it, it, it was one of the things that brought it home to me that we're seeing this fundamental shift in that, that people were willing to attack someone who they claimed that they were huge fans of because of something completely unrelated 
in any way. I mean, he wasn't being negative. He wasn't dismissing it. He just, he was talking about a bottle of rosé, right? And I think we're seeing this across the board with brands everywhere is that across the spectrum of age, we are all looking at life more holistically. We are not segregating our decisions. And by the way, I think this applies just as much more making our technology decisions, which goes all the way back to my statement about why people are buying, enterprise buyers are buying visions. Because it is, and because and I think the, the reason these two are connected is that we start caring about what an organization, their stands on things like social issues or what have you, for the same reason that we care about an organization's vision, because it gives us a window into sort of how they see the world. And we want to be associating ourselves with people whose vision we share. And so it becomes really closely intertwined and, um, and a slippery slope. It can, it's very difficult to manage all of this, um, which is why I, I say we're in this continual state of transformation because expectations and interests and desires are constantly changing and we have to be continually adapting. So that, that's where a lot of the industrial age sort of artifices are failing because they're just too rigid for the world we live in today. Digital transformation, customer experience, are they the same thing? Do they intersect? Are there parts that are their own unique animal? So as we talked about, I, I, I see them as not the same thing exactly, but very interrelated. Um, but do they have some degree of, of their own independence? Absolutely. So, so some element, for instance, of digital transformation, um, going all the way back, we were talking about executional capability. Well, there are some parts of that that are infrastructure, that are just core, right? The moving onto the cloud, as an example, um, for you know, core infrastructure type elements, your databases, what have you, can, you know, may not directly impact the customer experience, but it is a chief enabler because it gives you the technical agility that you need to pivot and change direction without, you know, dealing with the, the investment bias, right? So, so I think there's, there's some dislocation there. And I think likewise, there are certainly elements of the customer experience that have everything to do with, if I'm in retail, how my sales agents um, welcome a new customer into the store or how they deal with a customer complaint that have nothing to do with technology. That said, I think both of those are sort of outliers now. Increasingly, the customer experience is, is either digital directly or digitally enabled. Um, and increasingly, every aspect of digital transformation or almost every aspect of digital transformation is or at least should be more directly connected to the experiential improvements we're trying to make. And, and so, you know, uh, when I work with, say, hardcore infrastructure type players, I'm still talking to them. So you may, you may be all about the stuff that you think a customer never sees, but if I can't connect the dots somehow to this agility or this performance increase somehow is going to deliver a better experience for the customer, then at some point anyway, that's going to be a tough sell because that's what's going to be driving our spending decisions within, within enterprises um, increasingly. And so, I, yeah, I think they are, there is some space around the edges, but increasingly they are joined at the hip. So you can't talk these days without talking about pandemic impact. So have you seen a shift in how and where people work in the long term in terms of digital transformation because of people being forced out of offices? I've seen I've seen the metrics, right? 
So Facebook and Alphabet and everybody reported last week and the share shifts and the cloud migrations and the open markets and right the, the public securities guys had analyzed that to death. But from a true technology perspective, right, other than selling VPN clients and laptops out the wazoo in the first 60 days, have you seen true shifts in how people are approaching the transformation and impacts of what they have to do because people are working from home, I guess is really the question. So from a technology perspective, clearly the big winner in this was the cloud. Those organizations that moved um, more directly, more um, concretely into the cloud definitely are winning right now. And, and for the simple reason that they have greater agility, they have much more flexibility. Now, I, I, it's also, it's been interesting. I, I was on a, I've been on a few calls with some senior IT execs and you're sort of seeing there's the cloud and then there's the cloud, meaning that there are some of these players that ostensibly were in the cloud and yet contractually anyway, I'm not sure about the technology, but at least contractually, they were offering no flexibility. So it was, it was you know, sort of like the your mess for less kind of syndrome where sure they were in the cloud, but they weren't getting the flexibility that we normally associate with it. This idea to spin up, spin down, move and tra- that they weren't getting it. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's any buzzword, you have the danger of simply going to the cloud doesn't automatically give you this, but those organizations that have invested in a architecture that gives them um, technical flexibility and technical agility are definitely coming out on the winning side. And, and so that's why you're seeing certainly all the numbers of the major cloud providers. They were certainly a bright spot um, in, in the sector. And even companies like SAP, for instance, had massive growth in their cloud movement and, and huge fall off in their on-prem licensing revenue, right? And so I, I think we're going to continue to see that play out. Over the long haul, though, uh, you know, I think that I think the the all that is is reinforcing and accelerating a trend around cloud that was already well underway. It's not a fundamental shift that this is driving, and I think for the most part, the rest of it is is going to um, be the same. I think what we're seeing the pandemic is, is accelerating trends. It's not really creating new ones. Um, you know, people are calling this the greatest work from home experiment the world has ever seen. I am encouraged by the fact that I think it is it is changing the perception of people. So I do think we're going to see a much higher prevalence of work from home continuing well into the future. I do think that's going to drive some fundamental changes in how organizations look at their um, office space, how it's utilized. But I don't believe where you know people are talking about the the um, commercial office space apocalypse. I'm not seeing that. I think people are going to see a reduction. But there is a lot to be said for camaraderie and uh, you know the connection that people have and and um, wanting to be out of the house and work in a different environment. I mean, I've worked from home for 20 years. You couldn't get me into an office to save your life. But for a lot of people, they want to be in that office, and there's a lot of benefits to it. So I think what I think we're going to see going forward is not a return to the way it was. But I also don't think it's going to be everyone's working from home. I think what we're going to see is a much more dynamic, much more um, uh, hybrid type of approach where it's more going to be driven by the employee experience. What, what is good for you your, and your productivity, Tim? Is it better for you to be working from home? Does that make you more productive and more happy? Or is it better for you to be in an office? And by the way, is it better for you to be in an office that we provide? Or is it better for you to be in a shared office like a WeWork space where you, you have some balance between the two where you're not having to have this big commute? Where I expect is that we're going to see this, this shift. Now, um, toward, towards this more hybrid, adaptable kind of work model, um, which also is going to uh, play into 
something else I believe in, which is we're going to see the continued rise of self-organization and self-management type models. So you put all that together. Um, and I, what I do think it does have an impact on the technology, but for a different reason, right? So we now, we now need a technology landscape that is much more flexible in terms of enabling the user experience, the employee experience, um, allowing them to work whenever, however they want. Um, and so I, certainly it makes it a security nightmare, but if you're an organization that has basically tried to build um, moats and walls around your physical prem space because everyone was in your office, you've got some work to do because that's probably not going to be your future. So you have a wealth of resources on your website. I read your weekly newsletter. If somebody's listening and just is trying to get their arms around it, give them a couple of places to start because the podcast is great. The website is you know, so deep you can drown in it if you're not careful, because I could have had a thousand more questions just from prep work here, right? And it's good stuff and it's digestibles, but where's a good starting point for somebody looking at this and some areas they should poke on the stuff you've done? So uh, two things, I guess. One is yourdigitalfuture.net is, is uh, you, you mentioned earlier, that, that really drops you into a, a landing page for um, Your Digital Future, which is this weekly newsletter I send out, which is about to go through a major change, by the way, um, to try to make it a little bit more digestible. And, and, um, and so my goal with that is to hit on some specific element, one topic, and then give some resources for you to, to dig into whatever makes sense for you, right, depending on where you're at. So, so that's certainly the best place to start. Um, in addition, um, on the website, if you go to Your Digital Future, which is the section which has really all my content, so that's all of the, the content I produce for the journal, um, research that we're producing with the Institute for Digital Transformation, my market analysis that I produce for CIO Magazine, as well as Intellix, um, and I got some resource uh, hubs as well. Um, the, on there, you'll see a button that says Start Here, and what that walks you through is a seven-part series that sort of gives you um, much of what we talked about today in much more detail, walking through what all this is, what are the macro trends. So there's two things I call the primacy of the customer and the primacy of the algorithm. We didn't really talk about the second macro trend at all, but these two trends are intersecting um, what it means to your organization, what it means to the nature of leadership. Um, I believe it's going to lead to this, this what area that I or this era that I call the new human age, where it's going to be our humanness that becomes a driver of personal value. So there's kind of a whole other segment we didn't even get into. So the seven part series sort of just walks you through my vision of where I think the future is leading us, what it means to you and, and how you can reshape your, reshape your organization, build an innovation engine and unleash your humanness as sort of a source of power through all of this. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to go into the second part. So that's for the general world, right? But if I'm a CIO, CISO, I'm at an early stage or at some stage of a company in the IT space, right? And I have questions, is there something different they should do? Because I know you have a different part to your world too. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in, in the end, it's all, it's all interrelated, right? My goal is to help what I call digital leaders, the, the new generation of leaders, try to make sense of all of this that's, that's happening. Um, but as we talked about, the, the two kind of major moving pieces here are the enterprises and the tech providers that are providing the solutions for them. And so I work with both of those on, on my website. So again, it's charlesarajo.com. There's a up at the top, um, work with me and on there kind of has des describes how I work and uh, a couple buttons to push and trust me, I'll be John, I on the spot to chat with you about how I can help, but, uh, but that's where you would go. Cool. A anything I should have asked that I didn't? 
Well, like you said, we could talk for hours. No, I mean, you know, the, the biggest thing people, you know, as you said, where this is challenging is that it is so much. And I get that. I've, I'm, I've, my goal in life, my mission in life now is to try to simplify, deconstruct all these ideas to not only make them understandable, but make them actionable. And so my, my single piece of advice to any enterprise leader that is listening or watching this, um, or if you are working with them, the advice you should be giving to them is A, understand that this is bigger than a bread box, but then do something, right? The, the worst thing is to freeze and pretend that somehow nothing is going to change or you know that, that this is just the way it is and this too shall pass. It's not. This is the real deal. It's big and you have an opportunity. I think we, we all are living in an incredibly exciting time where we have the opportunity to be a part of this really fundamental shift that I don't think the world has seen since the dawn of the industrial age. And we're at, you know, at the beginning of this process. And so for all of us, we have this amazing opportunity to not only be a part of it, but to lead it. And, and I wanna help you do that, um, but you need to be taking action. And if you, you know, I know this is mostly talking to like sales folks, carry this message forward. You, you will, it, it sounds almost counterintuitive but everyone is sort of understanding this now. We're starting to get it. We're getting the inkling. And so if you move past just trying to sell the latest piece of technology and are talking about the reality of this shift that is happening and that we are all in the midst of it, and there, here is the authentic, legitimate role your solution can help play in that transition, you build a foundation for trust because that's the conversation. Having been the person that bought this stuff for so long, that's what we need right now. We need people that we can trust who understand and communicate. And you don't have to have all the answers. Be honest about where you sit into it, where you fit into all the, you know, all the pieces here. But understand and, and acknowledge the reality that as an enterprise leader, I'm living. And you will transform your relationships. So that's what I hope people take from it. That's a great point. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate the time. Thanks.